Well, you finally got a proper pulpit. So when you get nervous or tired, you can lean on it. Well, good morning, Burlington Baptist Church. It is good to be with you again. And if you are a guest here, you're thinking, who in the world? I'm L.D. Campbell, and I preach here occasionally. And uh, Ken has asked me to fill in today, and I am grateful to be here. I love coming to the Burlington Baptist Church. You are so gracious to us. When I did not think I'd ever preach again after I was so sick, the Baptist took me in. (laughs) And paid me very well. And I rubbed it in on First Church when I preached there. So I am glad to be here. This is sort of like coming home to Joyce and I, and we love Burlington Baptist Church, and we love being with you, and we're always grateful, and we're honored to be back. Let's pray. And now, Father, pour through me the gift of preaching. Take these human words and use them to speak to us today, and give each of us just the message you want us to hear. We pray to you in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen. There's a lot of talk today about how the world is going to end. Some of it is worth listening to and much of it isn't. But one thing we have to admit, the future looks very threatening, doesn't it? I have never seen in my lifetime such fear of the future that we are experiencing today. How about you? So it is essential As these fears about the future increase, that we Christians then manifest one of our most precious possessions, and that is the hope of the second appearing of Jesus. It's not about what the world is coming to, but who is coming to the world, amen? The Bible says in Titus 2.13, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, it makes a really good study, a fascinating study, just to go through the New Testament and to discover the purposes of the second appearing of Jesus. That's what I want to do with you this morning. I just want to do a little Bible study about the second appearing of Jesus, what it means to Jesus, what it means to us, and what it means to to the world, this created world. Jesus will appear the second time to complete our salvation, to complete our salvation. Now, the center of our faith is the first appearing of Jesus into the world as a real man to destroy the works of the devil and to create a new people like us for his glory. Now, the second appearing of Jesus into the world will be to complete that saving work. Now, if you took away the second appearing of Jesus, then the whole fabric of salvation unravels. Look what Hebrews says, Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear the second time not to deal with sin. Here it is but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, the second appearing of Jesus is the necessary and logical outcome of our faith, a faith that says that God has already saved us by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, if Jesus does not return the second time, then the plan of salvation that was worked out before the very foundation of this world then begins to unravel. It's a beginning with no end. Emerald Burner, who is, who is a, a theologian, he said, Faith in Jesus without the expectation of his second appearing is a check that is never cashed, a promise that is not made in earnest, A faith in Christ without the expectation of a second appearing is like a flight of stairs that leads nowhere but ends in a void. Jesus' death and resurrection and the second appearing are all one piece of fabric. Now, the only way to understand the second return of Jesus is to see it as a completion. A completion of what he did in Gethsemane, a completion of what he did on the cross, and then a completion of what he did on Easter Sunday morning. All of those events will be vindicated by the triumph of his second appearing. The second return of Jesus isn't just a matter of our future, folks, or the future of the world. It is a matter of the future of Jesus himself. See, the second appearing of Jesus isn't just a triumph of his purpose for the world. But it's going to be a triumph of his person. Our Christian hope is focused on him. Now, we don't know all the details as to what to expect when he comes a second time. And I get so weary of the radio and the television preachers who've got it all worked out in detail. They're going to be so surprised when Jesus comes. And I don't listen to those guys anymore. We do not have all the answers. I like what dear, dear Dr. Warren Wiersbe said. He said, God did not put me on the planning committee. He put me on the welcoming committee. Amen. (laughs) It's not about how Jesus is going to come or when he is going to come. It's about who is going to come. Joseph Stowell is the president of, of Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids. And he calls it dirty window theology. Now, he came up with that term after he visited the shepherd's home in in Union Grove, Wisconsin. Shepherd's home is a Christian facility for mentally impaired children. Now, these children are limited in a mental way, but every day they are told that Jesus made them the way they are. He loves them just the way that he made them and that Jesus is coming back to take them to his home. But the problem is, at Shepherd's Home, they can't keep the windows clean. Because every day, those little kids go to the window, put their faces right up against the window, put their dirty little hands on the window, looking to see if Jesus is going to come that day. I think that thrills the Lord's heart, don't you? Jesus will appear the second time to complete our salvation. Jesus will appear the second time to judge the living and the dead. Now, folks, the judgment will be an unveiling of what is at present hidden about Jesus and also hidden about us. The New Testament reveals that one of the purposes of the second appearing of Jesus is judgment on our lives. Wow. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. So be careful not to jump to conclusion before the Lord returns as to whether or not someone is faithful. Here it is. When the Lord comes, 
He will bring our deepest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Wow, is that scary or what? Now, I don't believe that our deepest secrets and private motives refer to secret sins because what does the Bible assure us? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul talking about here? Once the wood and the hay and the straw are burned away, then the gold and the silver and the precious stone will remain, and that is what is going to be rewarded. Now, here's the scary part about the judgment. Here's the scary part that scares me about the judgment. We will be rewarded on one basis alone, our private motives. Those hidden motives, nobody sees them but God and us. Doing the right thing with the wrong motive, right? The right thing for the wrong motive. Well, I didn't really want to come to church this morning. They got that said they were having a guest speaker. And so, I don't know, you know, when we have guest speakers, you know. And so, I didn't really want to come, but I'll go. You're here for the wrong reason. You know what I'm talking about. The right thing with the wrong motive. Now, because of our hidden motives, some of us who have been in leadership are are going to have to take a back seat. A back seat to a person like Florence Beagle, who worked in the nursery for 42 years. She rocked every baby in that church for 42 years. You know what happens when judgment comes? Florence is going to go to the head of the line. Some of us are going to go to the back of the line. Jesus will appear the second time to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will appear the second time to conquer evil, to conquer evil. 1 Corinthians 15. After that, the end will come, and he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says, God has put all things under his authority. Now, I don't have time to go into the problem that the presence of evil poses in our world. That's a whole new sermon series. But without the hope, of Jesus' final victory over evil, then the problem of evil that we are dealing with today and has been dealing with ever since the world started, it cannot be solved. See, folks, the second appearing of Jesus means that evil will finally be dealt with. In the summer of 2006, some of you may remember this, we had one of the most evil things that I thought I had seen happen in Cincinnati. David and Liz Carroll were foster parents to four-year-old Marcus Faisal. They wrapped little Marcus in a heavy rug, duct taped him tight in that rug, put that little guy in a closet, and came to Kentucky for several days. Oh, they were kind enough to leave a fan on for him. Of course, when they came home, he was dead. Did they expect that he would survive taped in that rug and that hot closet? They burned his little body 
and threw the remains in the Ohio River. Now, the sad thing about it was this. The Carrolls were foster parents of a faith-based organization that had not fully investigated their character. Can you believe that? And had not fully investigated what went on in that home. It was terrible. Now, I don't know when anything bothered me more. I would wake up at night thinking about that little guy taped in that rug, in that hot closet, dying. Dying at the hands of people who were supposed to protect him. And an organization that was supposed to protect him. I want to tell you, when Jesus returns the second time, that kind of evil will be dealt with. N.T. Wright is one of the foremost New Testament scholars of our day. I recommend. recommend his books to you, particularly the one surprised by hope. He says the judgment is non-negotiable to the Christian belief. (laughs) Listen to what he says. In a world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, and oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitations and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Greg Fisher teaches at the West African Bible School. He was teaching on the second return of Jesus, and he told his students, he read the passage where it says that Jesus will return with a shout. And one of his students said, what will he say? What will he say? And Greg thought for a minute, and then he said, Jesus will shout, enough, enough evil, enough pain, enough suffering, enough sorrow, enough death, enough, enough. Jesus will appear second time to conquer evil. Now the next one we really like. We really like this one. Jesus will appear the second time to take his children home. Amen. Amen. Look at this in John 14. Don't be troubled. You trust God, now trust me. There are many rooms in my father's home, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if this were not so, I would tell you plainly, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Now, we long for the second appearing of Jesus. But we live in this constant tension. There is so much to do. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket. And there is so much to do. And there's this tension about trying to take as many people to heaven with us as we can and this tension of knowing that there's no place like home. And there's a part of us that always wants to go home where we belong. Because we know that heaven is our home. And we live with this spiritual homesickness. Have you ever been homesick? From from a little boy, I've always suffered with homesick. I am 73 years old. And I still get homesick. 
And nothing helps homesickness but going home. Now tomorrow, I will leave for Vienna, Austria, where I will be teaching for two weeks at House Edelweiss. House Edelweiss is a graduate seminary. We teach Christian leaders and preachers from the old Eastern Bloc countries, the old communist countries. And I've been going there since 2003 to teach, uh, to teach. And it's a wonderful experience. My students are wonderful. You know, when I teach here in the States, my students say, whan, 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 whan. Oh, Mr. Campbell, you're going to give us that much work. How many books do we have to read? Whan, 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 whan. And my students at, at Grindhouse State of I say, is that all you're going to require of us, Mr. Campbell? How about another book or two? But when I fly out of Cincinnati tomorrow, I usually ask to sit on the left-hand side of the plane. <laughs> and when I fly out, you know, I can look down and I'll see First Church. I can see our home. I can see Burlington Baptist Church. I can see the home of our children and our grandchildren. And I am hardly in the air and I am homesick because I want to be back there. And the only thing that cures homesickness is going home. And we live with this tension of being homesick for heaven and having to stay here. And by faith, we see another world. And we know our deepest desires are going to be continually frustrated until we live there. Folks, we're displaced people. Did you know that? We are pilgrims. We are strangers, nomads. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Greg Barnes is one of my favorite authors, and in his book, Searching for Home, he says this, pilgrims also need to believe that their journey really will end in the heavenly stars. (laughs) One thing is for certain from the Bible. Heaven is home, and it will be good to finally arrive at home. Can you imagine the family reunion that we're going to have? Can you imagine? Have you ever seen the movie Antoine Fisher? It's the story of a young black man born to a mother who was in prison. His father was killed, murdered two months before he was born. His mother finally abandoned him in an orphanage. He went from foster home to foster home, and anything and everything horrible that could happen to a little boy happened to Antoine. And many, many nights, Antoine cried himself to sleep. When he got old enough, he joined the Navy. He was filled with so much rage and anger that he got in fights with his buddies. And because of his anger and because of his violent temper, he was sent to see a Navy psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Jerome Davenport. Dr. Davenport was a wise, gentle counselor, and Antoine came to trust him. Dr. Davenport would tell him, Antoine, you need to find your family. I don't have a family, sir. Yes, you do, Antoine. Find them. Finally, Antoine took Dr. Davenport's advice. Search for a family that did not even know that he existed. He finds them, and they connect. I want you to look at this clip, and I believe in a small way it describes what our first few minutes and moments in heaven 
are going to be like. Look at this. Well, you know, whenever I see that clip, I think of something that Jesus said, many will come from all over the world and they will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and feast at the kingdom of heaven. Welcome, welcome. And you know what the best part about going home to heaven will be? We will gaze into the eyes of the one who is sitting at the head of the table and it will be Jesus himself. Amen. Jesus will appear the second time to take his children to heaven. The next one is one that we don't talk about much when we talk about the second appearing of Jesus, but it is as vital a part of the second appearing as anything. Jesus will appear the second time to transform the universe, to transform the universe. The universe will be transformed into a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. Look what Peter says. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Revelation, John says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. See, God's purpose embraces more than just the redemption of our souls. God's purpose embraces the redemption of this creation that he has created to glorify him and now is infected by sin just like we are. Look what Paul says about it. For the creation is eagerly waiting for God to reveal his children. That's us. Because the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. The one who subjected it did so in the hope that the creation itself would also be set free from slavery to decay in order to share the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that all creation has been groaning with the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul compares the redemption of our bodies to the redemption of God's creation. Creation that's been infected by sin has the same hope of redemption that we have. And God is going to redeem this creation from the curse. Now, the hymn book has understood this a long time. Over 300 years ago, Isaac Watts wrote Joy to the World. Listen what he said. No more let sin and sorrow reign, or thorns infest the crown ground. He makes his blessing flow as far as the curse is found. Now that has always been the promise. Satan is not going to win the battle for the universe. The curse that was started in Genesis will be reversed. And we can't imagine all that that will mean in detail. John Stott is my favorite scholar, and in his book, Incomparable Christ, he puts it this way. It's important, therefore, to affirm that our Christian hope looks forward not to an ethereal heaven, but to a renewed universe. So the new heaven and the new earth will not be a replacement universe, but a regenerated universe. Purged of all perfection, all present imperfections, with no more pain, sin, and death. 
Do you see the cosmic work of Jesus on the cross? Jesus did more than save our souls. Folks, Jesus has won a victory for everything that's been cursed by sin. And God intends to give no territory to Satan. Every atom that God created will fulfill its intended purpose in the new creation. Jesus will reconcile heaven and earth, visible with invisible. It will be complete. There won't be one atom that will be able to say to God, you can't redeem this. That's what we got to look forward to. Now let me tell you how practical this is. This is not just good doctrine, but it's very practical for us in the here now. One of the rewards of our 38-year ministry at First Church has been the wonderful, wonderful friends that we have made. Joyce says, you know, we love these people more than we love family. I said, look at our family. (laughs) But it's true, we do. And one of the sad things about being in a place for 38 years is that now for the last several years, I have been burying those dear, dear friends. On September the 14th in 2006, I went to Florence Park to see one of them for the last time, one of those dear friends, Wally Henneman. For 12 long years, Wally had been in the grip of Alzheimer's. When I came to First Church, Wally was already there, and for years he taught middle school boys. Now, I've told you another sermon. Anybody that teaches middle school children is going to sit on the thrones with the apostles and the prophets. Amen. I talked to Evan up there on the roost this morning. He's a school teacher. He wants to teach middle school children. God bless him. (laughs) Wally was a deacon. He became an elder. And for years, we called him then youth sponsors. He was a youth sponsor. And Wally and Lucy loved young people. And they opened up their modest home, and they housed many, many troubled kids down through the years. Joyce and I loved Wally Henneman, and he loved us. (laughs) But if the truth be told, he loved Joyce more than he did me. And once you meet her and you meet me, you will understand completely. Her name was one of the last names that he recognized. I would tell him, Wally Henneman, Joyce Campbell told me to tell you she loves you. And just for a few seconds, he would escape the captivity of Alzheimer's. His eyes would brighten and a smile would come across his lips. And then just that quick, he would return to his captivity. But the Wally I saw on September the 14th in 2006 is not the Wally that I will remember. Alzheimer's had long ago robbed him of his strong body. Ah, Wally was as strong as an ox, did manual labor, strong as an ox. His mind was completely destroyed now. He hadn't known anybody, responded to Joyce's name, hadn't known any of us for a long, long, long time. He had lost his ability to talk. He literally had lost 150 pounds. That day he had a high temperature. His breathing was labored. 
and I stroked his fevered face. And I bent down and I kissed him goodbye. And I stood there crying. And the nurse said to me, oh, Reverend, it's okay, it's okay. And I said, ma'am, it is not okay. It is not okay. It's not okay, ma'am. I'm sorry, but it's not. And I was angry. Oh, not at Wally. But I was angry at what the curse had done to him. His strong body taken. His mind completely destroyed. And I was angry at what he had suffered for 12 long years. But as I drove away from there, I said, Satan, you have not won here. Jesus didn't die just to save Wally's soul, but he died to save his body as well. And on September the 20th, we went to Forest Lawn. And we put the seed of Wally's old body in the ground. And when Jesus comes back, that diseased body that we put in the ground will be raised new and glorious and everything that the curse and Alzheimer's and Satan had done to make his life horrible and painful will be reversed and undone. And Wally's victory over the curse will be absolute in Jesus. That's what we've got to look forward to. Now, maybe this will help you. It comes from S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for 40 years. One of the all-time great African-American preachers of our times. Now, I'm just a little bitty white guy. And there's no way that I can do it like Dr. Lockridge did. (laughs) But let me tell you what he said. The first time he came as a baby, the next time he will come as a warrior. The first time he came, only a few saw him. The second time he comes, everybody will see him. The first time his glory was wrapped in the flesh. The second time he comes, his glory will fill the universe. The first time he came, he wore swaddling clothes. The second time he comes, he will be dressed in the robes of a king. The first time he came, he was surrounded by cattle. The next time he comes, he will be on a powerful stallion. The first time he came, the angels announced peace on earth. But the second time he comes, he will wage war against his enemies. The first time he came for all people. The next time he comes, it will be to gather his children. The first time he came, there was judgment on his head. The next time he comes, there will be, he will be the judge. The first time he came, they called him Jesus. And the next time he comes, they will call him King of kings and Lord of lords. King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. As King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. King's coming. King is coming. King is coming. Pray with me. Father, today we are comforted by the assurance and the words of that old song. Some golden daybreak, Jesus will come. Some golden daybreak, battles all won. 
He'll shout the victory, break through the blue. Some golden daybreak for you, for me. Oh, Lord Jesus, keep us faithful until that day. And we pray, even so come, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said,